Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg is being sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. For a 360-degree view of investor mandate activity across alternative investments, turn to Alternatives Watch. Vidrio Financial is the first technology-enabled service for allocators looking to harness investment complexity and make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That is V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation and Investing ESG and Technology podcast series. Today, Chris Aylman, CIO of CalSTRS, will join us. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. We'll start with some background, then discuss investing, ESG, and technology. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Chris's insight. On that note, welcome, Chris. Hey, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great. Look, uh, let's start with what is CalSTRS. Obviously, uh, you, you know it intimately, and, and I know it as well from being in the business for some time. But you know, some of our listeners may not be quite as familiar, so I think that'd be a great way to begin. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, it's just a bunch of initials, classic government. Um, it's the California State Teachers Retirement System, uh, which means we cover all the public school teachers in the state of California, uh, which is big, including L.A., San Francisco. So a million members. Uh, it's a giant uh, portfolio, $310 billion in assets. Uh, and it's pretty old. Uh, California Teachers was started in 1913. So it's older than Social Security um, and just has a really long, rich history. Um, but, you know, we're 100% focused in on the teachers. Um, our board is comprised of teachers and people in education. Um, so it's a really neat purpose and a, and a really great group to work for. Got it. And then in terms of getting a bit more granular, the objectives of the fund, maybe if you could briefly highlight those to contextualize the discussion. No, oh, thanks. I, I should have mentioned that. You know, the uh, CalSTRS is a defined benefit, which means the teachers, uh, their retirement isn't based on how they invest or how much they put away. It's a set amount of money that comes out of their paycheck, a percentage of pay. And then they get a fixed retirement benefit, depending on how long they've worked, uh, what was their salary toward the end of their career. Um, and then uh, it's dependent on us to deliver that. And so first and foremost, our, our formula benefit is geared on a 7% uh, run rate of return. So think of a, not individual years, but an, a pace per mile for a marathon of about uh, 7%, which in this environment looks high, but I can tell you, I've been managing money for 40 years. In the 80s and 90s, it looked pretty low. So uh, I think it's about the right target. Um, and you know, with our board, our focus is really to, um, make money in a sustainable long-term way. So we're very focused in on sustainability, on climate change in particular, uh, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, quite a lot of issues, as well as trying to beat our benchmarks and earn that 7% rate. Got it. That's helpful. And we'll get, we'll, we'll definitely get into the ESG momentarily. Or, well, no, you know what, why don't we just, why don't we just shift the order a bit? Why don't Let's we start do it. there? Yeah. Okay. Let's go crazy. Uh, why, why don't we start there now? Look, um, let's start with the E, the environment. I'll, I'll leave it fairly open-ended for you, but I guess, you know, thoughts on carbon, zero emissions, goals. So let me, you know, let me address the whole issue of E, S, and G. Those initials have really gotten in the way. Uh, I talked with Larry Fink recently and, and he said publicly, he's not going to use those initials anymore. Uh, which is like, you know, that means he can never spell the word geese. Uh, it's just going to be really tough on him. But thanks. I got to have a little humor. But I think that people have lost track. I had uh, somebody in the media ask me if that was a sector. And I said, no, it's long-term business risks. It's just a classification for describing things like pollution, uh, worker safety, um, cybersecurity, stuff that companies already actually track and measure and boards pay attention to, they just don't lump it into those initials. So it's unfortunate there's a lot of controversy in our country and a lot of the division over that. But these are just long-term business risks, uh, reputational brand risks to companies, and investors need to know about them and they need to focus in on them. Uh, so for us, because we're going to try and make money over a really long time period, 
that really is what's key to us is those kinds of long-term risks. So, and when you talk, talk about the E, that's the one I think that really gets a lot of attention and it should. Uh, I really focus in on the energy transition that over the next 20 years, you're going to see a massive change in the way we live our lives. I think even in the next seven years, by 2030, how we uh, move things, where we get electricity from, uh, how we produce steel and cement and aluminum, uh, and even in areas like agriculture. Uh, you know, we've been using burning coal for about 150 years to move things. And now we're going to have to shift and find other ways to, to produce that electricity, produce that uh, power to move things. And I think that's going to be an enormous investment opportunity. It's also going to involve some risk. Uh, and I would say to your listeners, that is going to dominate the investment landscape uh, for the next, like I said, 20 years, but certainly in the next seven years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I spent some time with Mark Carney, who you know, former uh, head of the Bank of England, and I think currently largely with Brookfield now. And I mean, the estimates in terms of what the energy transition will require in terms of global capital capex are, are inconceivable over the next decades. Uh, to that extent, though, hopefully this isn't too controversial a question. Where where do you stand on um, uh, exclusion or fossil fuels? No, nothing's too controversial. We, we, we live in a glass bubble. I'm used to it. Um, you know, I think exclusions uh, really uh, is an investment decision. It's not a social decision. And I also would argue it actually hasn't brought about any social change. People will point to South Africa. Number one, that was 1987. I think the world's a little different from then. Um, and the divestment then was actually five years before we saw apartheid end. And in between that, there was a banking boycott more importantly, a sports boycott. And South Africa is a little tiny country. It was easy for the world to gang up on it. This energy transition is huge. It is in every facet of our lives. So excluding one industry, excluding a set of companies is just turning your back on the problem. It's ignoring it instead of trying to engage and create change. You know, I know people is catching momentum. I've talked to Mark Carney about it. He disagrees strongly with it. To me, that's kind of like the initial reaction is I'm going to take my money and go play somewhere else. Good. That doesn't do any difference. It doesn't change anything. Uh, what changes things is talking to people, engaging with people, putting money to work in solutions and changes. And then also, most importantly, helping people who, who are using coal, gas, uh, oil to convert, to change. They need capital to be able to make those changes. If you ignore them, they're just going to keep doing that. What you need to do is, is get in there and help them come up with solutions. So we're very focused. Uh, it's a big part of our portfolio. We're growing it in climate solutions, climate mitigation. I can't emphasize enough how much climate is going to dominate your landscape, our landscape into the future uh, in every facet of life and around the globe. Let me put it this way. I don't want to be alarmist, but if we don't change the way we're living our lives now in the next seven years, we're going to start feeling the planet fry. And Mark Carney's told me I have to be optimistic because uh, I have to say the other option is pretty darn depressing. So let's hope we come up with some real great innovation and change. And you're right. It's going to require a lot of capital. So big institutions like us. I'm in California. I love to use the analogy uh, of waves. This is a mega trend. This is a big wave. And in surfing, you got to start paddling the board ahead of the wave. You got to time it right and then get up and it's a great ride. So we're a big fund. We're paddling on the board. We think the wave's coming and we're going to ride it and catch it. Uh, we don't want to be too early because then the wave crushes you, but you want to be too late and miss it all together. I, I couldn't agree more with almost, if not everything you said. Um, a huge fan of engagement. Uh, I, I'm largely opposed to exclusion. I, I don't think that solves anything. And I, I, I would even go farther and say, instead of exclusion, you know, for example, at the extreme, if a manager or, you know, or, or an investor or allocator has the ability to short, you know, at, at the, at the extreme, if you think there are bad actors, short them, but. but yeah, but exactly. To, it's, it's an investment decision and exclusion is just, you're eliminating something for your, from your, uh, 
uh, your sphere of opportunity, which is kind of silly. It's it's you either buy or you sell, and you're right. If you don't really like it and you think it's going to go down drains, you think they're all stranded assets, then short it. Don't just sell it and walk away. Totally. Anyway, great. What about this? The uh, again, um, you're in California, um, quite a, a, a leader in the sort of perhaps this the social space, and you know, obviously there are differing views. Some some might agree, some may not, but uh, curious on the you know the funds position on the social side. Oh, you mean people disagree in our country? Really? Yeah. Wow. I got to listen to your podcast. That's informative. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm it. I'm glad I'm being so enlightening today. There you go. You know, we feel pretty strongly, uh, and I think companies will tell you that that workers are their lifeblood and the key to them being able to produce goods, services. Um, and taking care of your workers is an important thing and paying attention to them. You know, a, a happy workforce is a good performing company. So we, when we talk to CEOs, the top performing CEOs pay attention to this and their boards track it. They hire consultants, you know, to do an engagement survey to make sure their employees, um, want to be there. You know, there's some, jobs where turnover is okay because you need fresh ideas, but most jobs you want some stability and you want to reward longevity. Um, so for us, you know, it's just part of the mix in a, in a capitalist society. We'd like to see the workers and social side get more ownership in uh, companies. Um, and we believe very powerfully in the, the power of diversity, um, whether it's gender diversity, ethnic diversity, um, age diversity, uh, disabilities, background, the more people in the room that think differently, the better the discussion and the richer the decision. Um, I've often said if instead of Lehman Brothers, it had been Lehman Sisters or better yet, Lehman family. I don't no. know about your family, but my family doesn't just all agree and nod their head. There's a real active debate about everything, even what to put on the Thanksgiving table. So, I think there would have been a lot more discussion if you'd broken group think and brought in a whole variety of people with different backgrounds. I often point out that, you know, there was a cosmetic company in California where the entire board was white male, pale, male, and stale. I have, I have three daughters. You know, I can tell you, I don't know anything about cosmetics. I don't know why they were there and why they didn't have uh, more variety on that board. And sure enough, it, it hurt them. Yeah, I have, I have two daughters and I couldn't, disagree again more with you on almost anything you said everything in our family is um a debate and um yes i would i would be incapable i would largely be incapable of running a cosmetic company however my daughters would excel at that including the 10 year olds but but moving on to um to the, the the g which is i think the least controversial aspect of of esg governance because it's really hard for i think almost anyone to argue there shouldn't be good governance but is there anything that you you sense or think that and again, maybe this isn't a fair question for you, but uh, that differentiates your view or uh, Calster's view on governance? No, I, I love that question. Uh, and yes, it's our stability and our uh, uh, consistency. Uh, our message has been the same since the mid 80s uh, about diversity on corporate boards, about better ratios of executive comp to uh, worker pay to be you know, just clear descriptions and understanding of executive comp. Um, and I think you know, you're right. Most people will agree that good governance is a good thing. It's tough to measure, tough to break that out. So it's not, it's the least controversial of ES and G. And it's been around, like I said, since the, the, the mid eighties. But what's I think frustrating and a challenge is that we see governance ebb and flow, ebb and flow. We worked really hard uh, back after Michael Eisner to turn around Disney and get better governance on that board. Because at one point, that board was all basically his best friends, handpicked. We got it, but then Disney started to do well, and the CEO reversed all the changes we made. We had to re-engage again. And now this is the third time we've had to engage with Disney to, again, get the board to be more independent and reverse some of their bad trends that they tend to fall back on. So... Uh, you know, what frustrates me is here we are uh, 40 years later still arguing about governance and pushing companies for better governance. Um, you know, American companies are not uh, little kingdoms and fiefdoms. The CEO is not the, the king in charge. They need to work for an independent board and that independent board needs to hold them accountable. So we're pushing 
for diversity on corporate boards. We're trying to help feed that by teaming up with some major universities to educate people and prepare them for those positions on boards uh, and really trying to get boards away from just hiring ex-CEOs who are their buddies and really hire people who can add value. You wouldn't, just like my example, you wouldn't want to own a cosmetic company without somebody who understands and and lives in that world. You wouldn't want to own a a, a electronic uh, company that provides gaming without somebody who's fairly young. You don't want a bunch of older people like me. So I I just think companies nowadays, uh, well, another example, you don't want to own a a snack food company that sells into South America unless you have somebody who can speak Spanish and understands the market in, in South America. So Companies are realizing it. I think the best and the brightest companies and the best CEOs are willing to be challenged and have an independent board who asks tough questions. Um, We don't get to see what goes on in the boardroom, but I can tell you that companies where the board has free reign to really challenge the CEO are actually the best performing companies. I'm sure the life's a little tough for that CEO, but that's why they can earn their money um, and they know that they're going to be better for it. Uh, iron sharpens iron. So, you know, you need a board that that is a bit independent and, and aligned with the company, but can ask tough questions. So I think what uh, stands out with us is that we have been at this so consistently, many times the same people. Now companies call us and ask us if their executive comp formula is understandable. Um, I can tell you, we've had staff that, you know, have an MBA and run through it and still couldn't figure out from the proxy statement, how executive comp works. That means the average teacher has no idea. They don't read the proxy, but even if they did, it's gotta be an understandable English. How does this CEO get paid? What are the motivations? Um, It's not a trade secret. And we need companies to be more clean in that kind of disclosure. So I think that's what stands us out. Executive comp, board diversity, and what's absolutely true is our consistency. The fact that we've been pounding on this for 30 years, I was able to say to Michael Eisner, and I've said it to other CEOs, as long as they're public school teachers in the state of California, we're going to own their stock and we're not going to go away. So they better listen to us. They better talk to us. We can actually be a help um, and and improve their company if they'll listen to us. Uh, but, you know, we're not, like you said, it's not, we're not going to just sell and ignore it. We're going to actually stay in their face the whole time. Very sensible. Shifting gears. So, you know, there are three primary topics of this this podcast series. Uh, we hit the first one, ESG. The second one, what about innovating to improve alpha from an investment perspective? Is is that possible? Is that something you do? If so, how? No, absolutely. Sorry. And, you know, I love the name, uh, but, you know, to me, it's also seeking alpha, just trying to find it. It seems so elusive. Uh, these markets are so bloody efficient. It is really hard to outperform. Um, I, I know that, you know, CNBC lives every day on telling us what stocks to buy and what to sell. As I often tease them, they're fast money. Well, I'm slow, patient money. Uh, and that's actually how you make a return, not by being fast, but by being patient and investing steadily. So for us, innovation is first capturing the beta and capturing the beta of a market. In other words, the base return of, say, the U.S. stock market, making sure we get the entire stock market return. And we do so incredibly efficiently so that we're capturing 99.9% of the return net of all costs. You know, the average person with money in a mutual fund is, is probably only picking up about 91, maybe 85% of the return on the market because of the embedded costs and what they do. So especially at our size, the 300 billion costs matter. Then around that though, we're trying to innovate and, and we test drive new strategies in a small scale. I always like to say, as advertised on TV, does it really work that way? And will it work for us if we scale it up? Um, and we are very attentive to, to geopolitical risk and where we're taking risk in the portfolio. So right now in this environment, obviously fixed income to us is attractive uh, with uh, the short end of the curve. And now today, the long end of the curve at 5%. Uh, you can make a decent return out of fixed income. You can make a decent return in, in private credit. That gives you diversification around your equity portfolio. Uh, real estate, and that's a 15% of our fund is, is still just locked up. You're not seeing much happen in the real estate portfolio or the private equity market. 
as they're still trying to react to interest rates having gone up 500 basis points. Uh, but eventually those will unfreeze and those have held value for us. So number one for us to improve our alpha is to we put our eggs in different baskets. Uh, we own the beta of the market incredibly efficiently and, and cost effectively. Uh, and then we just try and add value around that. Because what you find in a pension plan or retirement account, take an IRA, you don't have to, have to hit the ball out of the ballpark, to use a baseball analogy, uh, um, each year. You just have to actually add a little bit of value steadily over time, keep your costs down. And then what you find is you're actually outperform uh, 90% of your peers. Uh, and the reason is they're going to have turnover, which creates costs. They're, they're going to jump on what they think is the next, next best stock or idea, and they're going to be bouncing around chasing ideas instead of just owning the entire market uh, and making a nice steady return. Yeah, look, I think that too is very sensible. Um, I could discuss those sub subtopics with you for hours, but in, in the name of keeping this um, to a reasonable length, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss private equity, real estate and private credit another time. Uh, and then, I, and then, I agree to come back. There you go. Lock that oh, perfect. Right, excellent. Round two. Will, the sequel will come at some point. Great. Uh, thank you. Kind of you. Um, all right. So let's shift gears to the third major topic of this podcast, which is innovation um, and technology. How do you innovate? How do you use technology at CalSTRS? Um, thoughts on that? You know, technology is such an interesting challenge in this day and age. And, and when you talk about us at CalSTRS, let's keep in mind, we are a government agency. We're a division of the state of California. We're all state employees. Uh, and government, you know, is, is pretty, uh, let's just say, uh, intentional about implementing technology. But the best point of that, obviously, is Zoom, uh, Teams. You know, that stuff didn't, we hardly even used that in 2019. And yet in early 2020, boom, we were all able to go 100% remote and work incredibly efficiently. So uh, I think certainly on the software side, and, and we're really quick to, to pick up on a lot of this. We use very complex uh, systems internal uh, because we're so big, we're teaming up with many of our biggest money managers who have their own internal systems and have realized they can, they can package that and sell it as a product. And, uh, um, you know, the, the world's getting more specialized in investment management. So you're seeing very clearly defined tools for each asset class, um, the way you measure risk and trying to get that. So the more we get digital in the portfolio, the quicker we can, can gather information, measure risk. That said, it's still a marathon. So even though you know what's coming up right in front of you, whether it's a hill or a, a, a busy road or whatever, um, you've got to keep your eye on the long, long-term pictures. So uh, we're definitely embracing technology. You know, we don't have any quote AI in the portfolio that that we're using to make judgments, but we are talking to some of our biggest partners who have been doing that for a while and understand how they're utilizing it. Um, and in our case, uh, you know, we're making technology investments. Uh, uh, obviously, the the big seven stocks, the magnificent seven are the largest part of our portfolio because they're the biggest stocks in the U.S. stock market right now. Um, and it's interesting in that area because it's really hard for active managers to own all seven. There's such a large uh, outweight compared to the rest of the market. Most of them can't even own the full market weight and they're underperforming. So in our case, we do. We also invest in venture capital, but you know what you find in venture is uh, it, it really is chasing unicorns. You know, you'll get one uh, awesome return and and you'll have say out of 10 investments five might be break even four will lose money but one will be uh, an amazing multiple return but it just is so hit or miss it seems so hard to identify which of those and I often point out to people look if you knew social media was going to catch on you would have poured all your money into myspace the first mover in that area yeah remember um, you know if you're going to be in I think the world's going to be online and looking at it at, at, through the internet you would have still owned America online so um, technology is tough it's hard to figure out which is going to be the winner uh, but what we do is try to make sure we're invested in enough spaces that after the initial run-up, um, then we can get involved. People love Tesla. 
but I point out we invested in Tesla in 2001. Uh, we actually wrote it to zero twice and had to put more money in just to maintain our position. And I remember the last time around 2010, I said, you know, are we just throwing good money after bad? And they said, no, no, you know, they may never build a car, but they're going to make money on technology. Uh, and, and when I tell people that story, they, they just can't believe that's true because now they see Tesla and they see the stock price and they think, well, of course, it was an easy decision. Uh, but it's like, no, you would have gone through almost 10 years of no rate of return. Would you have still hung in there or would you have cashed out? Um, that's technology investing for you. So it's not easy. Um, but I think embracing technology is you. what I've said to my staff is we have to be in an environment of continual learning. Uh, constantly educating ourselves. Look, I'm, I'm old, been in the business 40 years, uh, but I am constantly learning. And, and a good example would be climate change. I'm spending more time studying biology and chemistry than I ever did. I was a business major. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time in the physical sciences, but now I need to catch up and, and understand that better to be able to make investments. Hey, question. Oh, you, you, let's regarding your comments on VC. Just curious, isn't it? Isn't it a bit? I would. I would have thought it, it's just in light of your size, three hundred billion, which is obviously one of the world's larger asset owners. How, how do you invest in VC? It's you're not. You don't find that's challenging in terms of that size, or just just curious on those thoughts. No, it's actually incredibly challenging <laughs> for our size. And, you know, you would think being in California, in Northern California, would be a, a favorite of those companies. The problem is uh, California has really strong disclosure laws. So, you know, well-meaning intention, the San Jose Mercury News demanded we and CalPERS disclose our venture capital investments because they thought sunlight would be a good thing. Well, it turns out, no, venture likes to be private. They don't like to be exposed and, and they don't want to share their inside information. And when they put us under that law, uh, we got kicked out of a, a lot of VCs. So what's sad is the California, the two big California funds are, are actually underweight California venture capital, not overweight, underweight. Um, and uh, it is incredibly difficult because of size, because the, the venture funds are fairly small, small check sizes. Um, so we try to invest in that space, uh, but it's really a small fraction. We're better off being in the growth equity when things start coming to market. You know, when I started the business, there were about 7,000 public companies in the United States. Today, they're only a little bit less than 3,000. Uh, there are still 7,000 companies, but 4,000 of them have now stayed and gone private. Uh, that means they still need capital, and and that's where we can come in. Um, we can also hold them accountable on governance. Uh, but you know, when you're private, you can make long-term decisions. You can hurt a quarter's earnings, and and everybody's fine with it because you know you're making investments for the long term for the future, and and uh, that's a better way for companies to operate. We're providing capital in both marketplaces. And uh, that's where we can grow at scale and have a fairly uh, aggressive and large private equity portfolio. Right now, about 16% of our fund is in private equity. Got it. Well, and, and then in terms of um, shifting gears from venture, P, the investments, um, at a high level, what, what's the biggest challenge to achieving you know, your goals for the fund and, and CalSTRS goals? I look back over time and I have to say, I, I guess I've always said that it looks like another challenging year, um, but and it always feels like it's different now than it was in the past. Well, it was in the, it was challenging in the 80s and the 90s. But now I look back and I realize, man, with interest rates coming down, I had the wind at my back. That it was a lovely time. Now we're in an environment where interest rates have gone up. Uh, but we're also in an environment where the Federal Reserve is willing to drop rates to zero and basically finance recessions. Uh, that's a really different investment climate. Uh, geopolitical risk is back up. Um, so this economy doesn't match any of my textbooks. I can go back and look and say, hey, the Fed raises rates, 500 basis points, yield curves inverted, boom, recession in 18 months. Uh, and, and I've been saying that now for well over 18 months. So, um, I'll be right eventually, but you know that's indistinguishable when you're that early from being wrong. So uh, it's it's a really unique investment environment where it's hard to figure out 
and and the fact that it still is global, uh, but there's geopolitical risk. So where do you go to make money? How do you make money? Um, it's not following a lot of the traditional education we've gotten. And I think that's what, you know, when I look out into the future, if you overlay, as I said at the start, with the fact that I think we're going to have a massive, massive energy transition. I mean, just huge scale. Literally, I can't say it enough. Every facet of life has to be impacted by this change. Otherwise, we're going to fry this planet quickly. That, you know, that's just a real challenging investment market. Uh, I think inflation, while, you know, you look at the generation, I've got investment officers who've worked for me for, say, five to 10 years. In their career, inflation has been zero all the time. They don't even think of it as a problem. I started in the 80s when inflation was real. And uh, it's coming back. Uh, and I think it's going to be sticky. It's going to be uh, waffling in here. Hopefully it cools back down towards three, but it's not going to two. And that is a real challenge when you've got, you know, that basically means the, the current is moving against you all the time at two to three percent per year. It's harder to make money. Um, and uh, in this interest rate environment, we haven't adjusted the interest rates being up at five percent. So I've been very clear it's not uh, higher for longer. It's just higher forever. Uh, I think we're going to have rates in the 3 to 5% range for uh, easily the next decade. If you take a look at the amount of interest the U.S. government is going to have to pay on the federal deficit, it is staggering. Um, it, it is going to take, uh, it's 3% off GDP. Um, it is going to dominate the budget. I don't know how our country is going to keep, number one, running at a deficit and paying interest on this debt is really going to start crippling us. I couldn't agree more. I'm, uh, I've been a member of um, uh, uh, Pete Peterson's Fiscal um, Foundation for some years, and they were very early in, in, I would argue, flagging this and saying, hey, this is unsustainable. And, and, and that was way pre-pandemic. And, and since the pandemic, as you, you, you're intimately familiar, aware and familiar with, you know, I mean, we've just escalated it dramatically with all that fiscal policy. And uh, so I, I couldn't agree more. We've been socializing recessions, um, which is nice for the average citizen, but uh, is, you know, our kids, our grandkids are going to pay for it. And you know, they, we you look at the size of the Federal Reserve uh, balance sheet, and it is just truly staggering. And anytime a country does that, ultimately it leads to more inflation. Uh, it's just simply you you produce more money, print more money. That that is inflationary. So uh, I think it's just going to be a tough future. But speaking of balance sheet size, I'm curious if if Calsters has any view on uh, China. We do. We spent uh, uh, well over a year, a couple of years ago, I went to the board and I said, look, we need to really start to understand China. It's growing, you know, at 8%. MSCI moved it from a single digit percentage of the emerging market index up to 40% of the emerging market index. And I really thought I could ask a simple question. I asked the board, is China a friend or a foe? And we talked to some amazing China experts uh, Chinese nationals, uh, people here in the USA. And when you really step back from the rhetoric and look at the history, history of the United States, the history of China, uh, China is amazing, an amazing story with the amount of people they moved from poverty to middle class. Yep. Uh, but now that brings on immense trouble. And, you know, after studying that for a year, uh, the, the answer is China, a friend and a foe. And we found out the answer is yes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. At the that, same that, that, time, yeah, they're a okay. competitor and a compatriot. Um, you know, it is so challenging. So um, we're market weight. Uh, we are not overweight. Uh, we are not taking big bets in the private markets. We've had lots of discussions with, gosh, the SEC and Commerce Department, Labor Department, Treasury Department, uh, because Washington D.C. is so worried. And they recently asked me if, you know, are we investing in technologies that could harm the United States? And I said, I'm sorry, you're the United States. You're the one that has to tell me what's going to harm you. Uh, I can't predict the future. Um, and, uh, it, you know, they didn't have any answers for us. So it's like you need to inform investors of what to avoid. And, and now they are, which is helpful. It's like, that's fine. Tell us that, you know, what we can or can't. 
the U.S. and China are very independent, um, yet uh, at the same time, it is an enormous geopolitical risk. And, and I want to emphasize the global CIOs talk about this a lot. Geopolitical risk is not one of those risks that reverts to the mean. When I mean that, I mean, you know, when you look at P.E. ratios or inflation, they ebb and flow, but they kind of revert to a mid midpoint through history. Um, geopolitical risk is either on or it's off. It's very binary, like a light switch. And and so you either, you know, you have to look at Russia. You know, Russia was a tradable market, then six months later closed and any money there is lost. Um, so it is a real challenge uh, for uh, global investors to figure out what to do with China, um, whether to wait it. I have some peers that just half waited. I have other peers that avoid it. There's still some peers I know north of us that that are overweight. Um, and and everyone is looking at that, trying to figure out where they should be and, and how should they invest. It's an enormous market. Um, and so any, any company that operates here in the USA, somebody's trying to do something similar in China, but times uh, a, a billion or two billion people, it, it, uh, the scale of opportunity is still huge to people. So, uh, but is it investable for us? I don't know. It's an interesting challenge. Something that's come up in conversation with you a couple of times is, um, or from my perspective, is um, the equities. You run them internally or externally? Um, we run, uh, thanks for asking that. We run over half of the portfolio internally here in West Sacramento, California. Uh, we run about 80% of the fixed income portfolio, 85% internal. And we run roughly 75% of the equity portfolio, almost all the USA. Uh, a good chunk of the non-US and even some of the emerging markets is all managed internally. Anything that's indexed or tracking an index, um, we can run internally very efficiently and effectively. Um, we even in fixed income, we do some active uh, strategies like high yield, uh, a tips portfolio. Um, it's just very effective and efficient for us. If we're going to use uh, active management, we'll tend to lean toward external managers. Um, if anything is kind of a quant style, then we can usually try to run some of that um, in-house as well. Uh, I think when I look at our team, terribly talented, but we, we have, we're a government entity. So that's the wrong business structure to, to run active money. Um, and so we pick our shots of what we can do efficiently and effectively, and then what we're better off outsourcing to somebody else uh, who can have you know, offices around the world and have boots on the ground to do active management. And just out of curiosity, where do you stand on hedge funds? You know, I'm pretty adamant. Hedge funds is not an asset class. Uh, it is literally just a government, uh, a contract structure. Uh, when you look at hedge funds below the uh, cover, um, there's already are over 23 very different strategies, uh, and they they can play a role in your portfolio just um, uh, in different ways. Uh, so we use. Uh, we used to use three. Now we're going to go to two of those types of strategies that we think are interesting and add value. But you're not going to see our, we don't have an allocation to a hedge fund category. We don't label it that way. We just look at these as uh, uh, trading strategies and business structures. Um, you know, the only thing that hedge funds have in common is they have high fees and they have usually gates. Um, oh, yeah. And they like to use cash as their benchmark, which is like, you know, uh, being a hurdler and just painting the hurdle on the ground and saying you can jump over it. So, yeah, um, yeah I just I've been very loud and vocal about uh, since they came out. You know, you, you've got to pull back the cover and look underneath and figure out what is the strategy? What are they trying to do? Uh, you know, multi-strat hedge funds just mean crazy trading all over the place. Uh, you know, if you threw 15 strategies into a bucket, uh, it's like 15 scoops of ice cream. It, it's going to melt and not look pretty, not look very good. So you got to know what you want and what, what you're buying into. Question, which do you mind saying which two strategies you do invest in or will? Uh, rather yeah, no, we, uh, we use uh, CTAs, which uh, used to be called commodity trading accounts. Basically yep. it's a, a trend following managers uh, who are looking at momentum and trend and, and then shifting around the world. Uh, and then we use global macro and, and we use those two strategies because they tend, not always, but they tend 
to be able to short the market and provide some diversification. They're less correlated to stocks. And that's why we use them is they're, they're tools for us to diversify our exposure to the stock market, um, which is, you know, is a big chunk of our portfolio. So we want to, again, put our eggs in more than one basket. What's, what's a red flag when you're looking at a manager that such that just, just one example that you wouldn't invest you know, uh, we do a lot of manager due diligence. Um, uh, the, it sounds hard to measure, and it is hard to measure. The number one red flag is actually culture change. Um, I've studied money managers for 40 years, and, and you can have a different culture. You can have a star system. You can have a team system. But it's really getting down and understanding what's the culture. I find that if it stays consistent, it can produce alpha. In other words, you know, when you have a, a consistent leadership structure, you perform better as an employee and all the employees together oftentimes can actually exceed, exceed their talent. But when that culture changes, the alpha disappears. Uh, the immediate red flags are things like uh, leadership turnover, portfolio manager turnover, uh, simple things like trade violations and sloppy trading. Um, high fees is a big red flag to us. I'll pay for fees if I get a net return, but that already means I'm running with a huge drag on me. Uh, and that means it's going to be hard to constantly produce net, uh, net um, positive returns. Cause that's, you know, I'm looking for alpha. I'm looking for somebody who can beat uh, add value net of cost. Uh, and what I find in active management, particularly in stocks in the U S and around the world, managers can beat the market, but then when you deduct their fee, you're behind the market. And, uh, you know, I, I've said active management has a role, but I think it has to really take a look at the pricing mechanism. Um, and and it, it eats up its own value. So there are a number of things when we look at external managers that are huge red flags. You know, we're a giant fund. Um, we do do business with new startup firms, um, but that's pretty rare. Uh, because, um, you know, a, a first time firm, uh, as somebody said to me recently, you're not going to you're not excited when you hire a first time brain surgeon or a first time eye surgeon or a first time babysitter. Um, those things make you nervous. So uh, but we do develop managers. Uh, we also do business with a lot of big established managers uh, and we watch them really closely. And that's where we pay attention to the culture. Uh, it's hard in this environment because you can't travel as much can't spend as much time and people aren't in the office as much, but uh, it, it is, I think, a critical element of monitoring a manager is understanding the culture and, and man watching that alpha because too often you hire a manager because they produced alpha, kind of like chasing, you know, a winner. You're, you suddenly are betting just because somebody has been winning while well, they're probably due to start losing. And uh, I think too often, when I look at our industry being the institutional investor industry, I would say too often we hire managers at the top and we fire them at the bottom when actually we want to do just the opposite. Hey, that's a good segue into what, what's, a, what's a mistake you've made investing over your you know, impressive career and what's a lesson from it? Wow, my biggest mistake. Hey, it's great to interview with you, So, uh, but I got to run. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a tough, that's always a hard one. Uh, but I, I remember them like they were yesterday. Um, you know, I, I think I remember 08, uh, letting the emotion of that environment uh, hit me. It was hard to, to buck that trend. Uh, I look at some of my peers that rebalanced in March of 09, which was exactly the bottom. We didn't rebalance until I think about May. So we still caught near the bottom, but we weren't as quick. Um, I remember uh, the very beginning of my career that uh, a manager really pushed one particular stock and uh, it was going to go public. And uh, boy, did they put pressure on us and uh, it flopped. Um, and I realized, you know, I need to do my own due diligence. I can't believe what other people tell me. I need to really study something myself. And again, You've got to look beneath the cover. Don't believe the sales pitch. Don't believe the story. You really have to do hard and detailed due diligence. So the, the simple phrase, and you, we've all heard from Warren Buffett of invest without emotion. Um, you know, if everybody else is greedy, then be fearful. If everybody else is fearful, then be greedy. 
it's just so hard to do that. I, I have joked many times, uh, it's just simply uh, buy low, sell high. You can even do it in the reverse order. You can sell high and buy low. It's just really hard to do it. What's what's your favorite book or a book that you've read that you like recently? Either. You know, I'll be adamant. Uh, I read the Bible. I read the Bible all the time. I think there's great wisdom and advice in there. And to me, that gives me great comfort. Uh, I read a lot of leadership books. Um, uh, Lincoln on Leadership has always been one of my favorites. Um, and uh, I just think that, you know, leadership to me has been a big part. Now they offer it as a class in universities. They didn't when I went to school. Um, but uh, I've had some great leaders and I've had some really lousy ones. So I've really learned a lot. Uh, and I, it's one of those things, it is like the Bible where I have to read it again. It's like, boy, I knew that, but I need to hear it again because you just, you get out of practice and you forget stuff. And, and so you need to be constantly reminded. What advice do you have for other allocators and investors? If any, you know, I think uh, I see too often that that a lot of my peers start to think it's their portfolio, uh, and rec and I would say, you know, recognize your job, your duty. You work for a board or for somebody. Give me your best advice, but it's their money, and you listen to what they want to do and achieve it. Uh, I think being consistent, sticking, uh, and not chasing the latest latest fad. Wall Street is constantly coming up with new ideas. And oh, by the way, they're always the most expensive ideas. Um, so not being swayed by what's new and exciting, uh, because oftentimes it burns out like a flare. So um, uh, it is simply asset allocation, even though that's often boring to people. That's the number one key is understanding your asset allocation, um, watching that closely. Rebalancing is not exciting, but that is uh, buying low and selling high. Uh, and paying to paying attention to your discipline. So um, I enjoy talking to my peers a great deal. Um, and it is always interesting, sadly, one, how much they turn over in the USA. But on the other hand, the few that stick around for the long term, um, you know, how much we really take a long term perspective. We don't care about one quarter or even a year um, because many of us are managing long term uh, liability portfolios really focused in on the long term. It, well, I couldn't agree more with you on the um on 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 work, you know, working for the board and but it's it's the client's money or or whomever the beneficiaries are. When I was at APG running the alternative portfolio uh, for multiple years, um, you know, look, I had multiple my team and I frankly and frankly the entire investment team in, in some instances had entirely divergent views from what the board and they wanted, but you know, as you said, at the end of the day, it was their capital, and and we were we we had a fiduciary duty to the to them, and you know, we 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 had to do what they wanted, and um, even even if there were divergent views, but but I agree with you. Last question, uh, as we're running out of time, and it's but but it's been super interesting. Um, what what didn't we discuss that we should have, or that I haven't asked you, or you're discussing with other allocators or investors, if anything? Well, the thing that we're talking about, uh, and it gets really into the details, is in this environment, how do you how do you bring people investments? And it's the work environment. So I guess, you know, remote versus uh, in-person. Investments is a mentoring business. Um, and while we can work pretty efficiently remote, and especially if the team knows each other and has history together, uh, you know, when we first went remote in 2000, uh, it was seamless. We had our best year producing alpha. Talk about seeking alpha and, and trying to improve it. Uh, that was amazing. But as we added more staff, I noticed a, a bit of a lack of connection. Um, and you really don't, you know, 70% of communication is nonverbal. You really get a lot by seeing somebody in three dimensions rather than two dimensions. So, Figuring out, I think, going forward, how to manage this business with being in person in the office versus uh, remote. Um, it certainly is a, a very nice uh, work environment to not have to commute, to be able to work from home. But I'm noticing New York firms are back five days, sometimes at least four days a week. Out here on the West Coast, people are usually two to three days a week. What's the right balance? Um, you know, we own a ton of office buildings. So what happens to those? Uh, what do you need in the office environment going forward to help people work efficiently? 
Um, you know, when I look back at my career over 40 years, uh, the idea of working at a desk uh, was just a given, was not even, you know, a discussion. You had to commute and you sat in the desk for eight hours or nine hours and, uh, and went home. Uh, now uh, we can sit on our couch and work and sit outside and work. And it is just such a massive transition. It's great. But how do we make the most of it and make it effective? I find my team is really good, 100% remote or 100% in. Hybrid is the worst of both worlds, not the best. So uh, I think going forward, it's, it, it is really going to be an interesting topic. It's not as exciting as the markets, but it's how we get things done and how do we work effectively. Interesting. Um, I, I could go on with you on that one too for some time, but I won't in the name of time as we're running out of time. But um, look, Chris, we'd like to thank you for that super interesting discussion uh, and sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Um, we hope listeners have a better appreciation for one of, one of our more thoughtful uh, asset owners is thinking about and how we'll all benefit from it. Uh, this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. And thanks again, Chris. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing ESG and Technology, sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial Asset Managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, OCIOs, and sovereign wealth funds, can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.